I want to invite you to open your Bibles if you have one with you. If you have one uh, you can grab uh, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing our series in, uh, in the Revelation, and so we're going to pick things up at verse 8 this morning. I want to begin this morning by sharing a story about a church in the second century. The year was uh, AD 155. Uh, the, the, the policy for the Romans at this time was not one of actively seeking out Christians, but if Christians were, uh, were, were accused of refusing to worship the gods of the Roman Empire, to worship and honor the emperors as gods, they were to be punished. A group of Christians in a church in modern-day Turkey in, the, in, the, in a city uh, presently called Izmir uh, were brought before authorities because of their refusal to honor the emperor, their refusal to participate in worshiping the gods of Rome. Courageously, they went to their deaths, thrown to wild beasts in an arena filled with uh, angry crowds. The courage of these believers uh, infuriated it. It made the, the crowds even angrier who began to chant and call for the, the life of the church leader, their pastor, a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp had been hidden by his church. He was uh, out of the city, and so Roman authorities sent a search party to find him to arrest him. Under torture, two young slave boys revealed where he was being hidden at a country home just outside the city. Uh, when the arresting party arrived, Polycarp was laying down uh, for a rest in an upstairs room. Uh, th- this fully armed posse came hunting for this man, this, as if they were hunting for a dangerous criminal. Polycarp's friends wanted him to sneak away, but he, at this point, uh, said no, he refused. What followed astonished his, his captors, the arresting party. He, call, he, he spoke to them as if they were friends and called for them to be served food and drink while he asked for an hour to pray, that hour turned into two hours. And overhearing his prayers, the arresting party began to have second thoughts. What were they doing arresting this old man? Polycarp was 86 at the time. Uh, they took him back to the city, to the arena. When they reached the authorities, the Roman authorities saw the senselessness of, of turning this elderly man into a martyr. And so they urged him, the proconsul pled with him, curse Christ and I will release you. But Polycarp's reply, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who has saved me? More entreaties from the authorities came. They threatened him to throw him to the wild beasts. They threatened him finally to be burned alive. But Polycarp cried out, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment of the ungodly is forever. As the fire was prepared, Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. For this I bless and glorify you. According to witnesses present on that day, as the flames began to engulf Polycarp, winds picked up and blew the flames from his body, prolonging his agony, prolonging his suffering, until finally a soldier nearby drew his sword and plunged it into Polycarp, ending his earthly life. I want you to imagine that moment. Polycarp standing in an arena of angry crowds, Bloodthirsty crowds. Authorities urging him, curse Christ and I will release you. 
I want you to imagine the pressure of that moment. The pressure to cave, to buckle. But Polycarp didn't, just like the believers killed earlier in the day didn't. 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp's life and his death are a powerful testified powerfully to his overwhelming confidence in Christ, his deep and abiding faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of death, the Jesus who loved him, the Jesus who himself had suffered for him, who had laid down his life on the cross, paying the price for his sin, for Polycarp's sin. And so he trusted him to the end. What a remarkable story of faith under pressure. This morning we return to the apocalypse, the revelation. This revelation from Jesus, this revelation about Jesus, this book, uh, the last book in the canon of Scripture, is from Jesus. It is also about Jesus. We see Jesus in these pages. Jesus pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover so that we can see him as he really is, so that we can see what is really true, what is really real. There is more going on than meets our physical eyes. Things are not as they seem. The the revelation, the apocalypse, uh, shows us uh, the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And it shows us the present in in light of the unseen realities even of the present. John, the disciple of Jesus, now in his mid-80s, is exiled on the island of Patmos, a volcanic lump of rock about 40 miles off the coast of Asia, the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. He is worshiping Jesus. On the Lord's Day, he is worshiping Jesus, the Jesus whom he followed, the Jesus who died for him, the Jesus in in whom he has placed his faith. And on the Lord's Day, while John is in worshiping, suddenly he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turns to see the voice, and there he sees Christ. He sees Jesus exalted and glorified. This amazing vision of Jesus that leaves John like a dead man on his knees before him. And Jesus commissions John, write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what is to take place later. John is commissioned to write the revelation, to send this to the seven churches. From that point on, for the next two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, we will encounter seven letters or seven messages to seven churches in Asia Minor. Last Sunday, we explored the first of these, the the letter to the church in Ephesus. If you were with us, you'll recall that the church in Ephesus was a key center of Christianity at this point in history, and there was much that was good about this church. Jesus began by affirming a number of things. One, that they were working hard for the sake of the kingdom, that they were enduring opposition, and thirdly, that they were standing for the truth. They were orthodox. Yet he said there was something that was problematic, something that he held against them. They were no longer characterized by love. Love, the the love that God has poured into us is to characterize our love, our our lives, our relationships with one one another. That is, the church, as disciples of Jesus, the central, critical, vital thing that is to characterize our lives is love. Love for one another. Jesus calls them back to love as as the thing that is central and of vital importance. Repent and do the things you did at first. As a church, as disciples, love ought to characterize them and us. This morning we turn our attention to the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 2, 
verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The city of Smyrna was located about 35 miles due north of Ephesus, up the coast of Asia Minor. It would have been the second city that you would have come to if you took the ancient Roman postal route. Smyrna was a beautiful and proud city called the crown and flower of Asia. It was the birthplace of, of, uh, of the great epic poet Homer. Smyrna boasted a well-protected harbor which facilitated a, a booming uh, export industry, and it ha- had an important road extending eastward from it, which meant it was well-connected with other important cities in the empire. Both of those things contributed to Smyrna's great prosperity. It was one of the most prosperous cities in all of Asia Minor. And Smyrna, on top of that, had a special relationship with Rome and with the imperial cult, that is, with the, the worship of the emperor. The city was fiercely loyal to Rome and lived by the adage, Rome first in all things. Even before Rome became the superpower that it was at this time, uh, they had placed themselves squarely on the side of Rome against the Carthaginian, uh, Carthaginian Empire. In 195 BC, uh, Smyrna built a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. It was the first city in the empire to do so. In AD 23, they built a temple to Caesar Augustus, and two years later, in AD 25, they competed with seven other cities to build a temple to, in, in the honor of Emperor Tiberius, and Smyrna won. Not only did they build those, but then they also built a temple to honor the Empress Lydia, and one for the Senate as well. Smyrna was a city sold out for Rome. Rome first in all things. Jesus writes this second letter, this John writes this message, he receives this message from Jesus to this church in Smyrna. We read these words. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Uh, We reflect first, we come to these words that describe Christ again. And these words come directly from the vision that John received in, John, in Revelation 1, uh, 17 and 18. There we read this. When I saw him, that he saw the exalted Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Uh, I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the first and the last. He was dead and came to life again, crucified for our sins, dying and bearing the penalty that was ours, resurrected on the third day, vindicated before us. Uh, Through faith in Him we are made new. Through faith in Jesus our sins are forgiven and we are clothed with the perfection of Christ. Jesus is the living one, the first and the last, the one who died and is alive. My question is, why, why is this the description of the living Christ given to Smyrna. I said last week that as we make our way through these seven letters, with the exception of the final of the letters, each letter repeats part of the description of the Christ that John encountered in Revelation 1. 
Why here in this letter in the church to Smyrna are these aspects about Jesus echoed? That he is the first and the last, that he was dead and is alive again. Well, the first and the last, that language comes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, 6, we read this, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. That is a remarkable declaration. At first, it asserts the deity of Jesus, that, that the one God exists in plurality, in something that is beyond our comprehension. One God exists uh, as a triune Father, Son, and Spirit. Here Jesus declares that in Him we encounter God. I am the first and the last. True God from true God is how the Nicene Creed puts it. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is the first and the last, he declares. And though this is significant, making a Christological statement about Jesus is not the central point here. Rather, what is of central importance for the believers in Smyrna is the fact that their lives are in His hands, in the hands of Almighty God, under His sovereign control, that He is King. As Isaiah said, apart from Him there is no God. What they need to understand is that they are in His hands, that He is the first and the last, that He is the first and last word. Johnson puts it this way, Jesus is telling the disciples in Smyrna that you and me, that our lives are bracketed in the sins of Caesar, our lives are boundaried by Him, the first and the last. Jesus brackets our lives. There is a second thing that we note in this description as we ask why is, is, are these aspects of the description of the living Christ brought out here? Jesus says that He is the one who died and came to life again. This points to Christ's resurrection, we'll come back to in a moment, but Smyrna itself, this city, their story, their history, they had experienced a sort of resurrection themselves. 700 years earlier, the city of Smyrna had been wiped out, destroyed utterly, left in ruins, and it sat that way for 300 years until two, uh, 290 B.C. It was rebuilt. And so in their understanding, in their, their civic sense of who they were, there was this, they, they were a city that had been once dead and was alive again. It was a proud part of their city. And so there's a point of relevance there. But of course, the important thing for the believers in Smyrna, in light of the message that they're getting, of course, is, as I said, Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus himself had suffered, suffered death even, but that he had defeated death that he had overcome death, that he had been raised to life. Even death could not hold him. And as he declared in, in the first chapter of the Revelation, now he holds the keys. Death is a defanged enemy. So what does Jesus know? He, he begins by saying in verse 9, I know, I know your afflictions your, and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Churchin says, I know. Jesus stands, let me remind you, Jesus stands in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is with his church. He is not far off. He is not distant. He is not absent or unaware. Jesus knows. He knows what they're going through. He knows what you and I are going through. He knows what the church today in light of COVID-19 is going through. He knows what the suffering church around the world in persecuted places is going through. Jesus knows. What does he know about Smyrna, about the believers in this city? First, Jesus knows their afflictions. Their afflictions. The Greek word used here is thlipsis. It, it, it's, a, it's a strong word. Often translated trouble or suffering, afflictions, distress. But, but, but its most basic meaning is, is pressure. Crushing pressure. I know your thlipsis. I know the crushing pressure you're under. 
The Christians at Smyrna were living out their lives as disciples of Jesus under crushing pressure. And Jesus says, I know. I know what you are going through. I know what you are experiencing. Second, Jesus says, I know your poverty. Poverty. That may strike us as odd, especially if we reflect again on the city. Smyrna was one of the most prosperous cities in all of Asia with this flourishing export market, connections to other cities in the empire. Why why was Smyrna, why would anyone in Smyrna be impoverished? Well, because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Christians were suffering economically because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Remember, Smyrna was fiercely loyal to Rome. Rome first in all things. And so at the very core of their civic identity and their civic uh, pride was this honoring of Rome. Thus, when Christians refused to participate in either religious or civic ceremonies that honored the emperors as gods, that honored the, the pagan gods, they would have fallen under the, the anger of their fellow citizens. Their business would have been, businesses would have been boycotted, perhaps vandalized. They would have lost jobs. They would have lost income. They would have found themselves excluded uh, from, from purchasing, from buying. They would have faced all kinds of economic fallout because of their failure to, to join in this this matter of civic pride in this city. Their poverty was part of the crushing pressure they were under. And yet Jesus says, yet you are rich. And this note, in the midst of this, in the midst of their, the crushing pressure, in the midst of their economic poverty and, and challenges they were facing because of their faith, Jesus says you are rich because you are children of the Father. You are co-heirs with Christ. You have marvelous rewards awaiting you. Third, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that something is making matters even worse. And we read this, the slander of those who say, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in a synagogue of Satan. Strong words of Christ. Strong words. Evidently, the local Jewish community was, was causing great harm to the Christians in this city. You see, under Roman law, the Jews were exempt from having to worship and honor the emperors as gods. They were exempt. And many civic leaders, many uh, citizens of, of Roman cities would have thought of Christians as just part of the sect of Judaism. And, and the Jews didn't want that. They, they wanted nothing that might, might ruin what they had going. They didn't want to lose this privileged position, this, this exemption. They didn't want it changed. And so in their anxiety, they didn't want to have Christians identified with them at all. And so we know historically that, that they were some of the fiercest opponents of the church, that, that in, in order to prove their, their loyalty to Rome, they, they proved to be informers on Christians. And Jesus calls them, those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Please understand, this at this moment is not an ethnic statement. This is, this is religious. Paul in Romans 2, we read this, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Jesus is saying that, that being part of the people of God isn't about ethnic background. It's not about being Jewish. Being part of the people of God is about being one inwardly, that is, being transformed by faith in Christ. And so Jews who align themselves with Rome, Jews who align themselves against the church, are in fact not part of the people of God. That's Jesus' point. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Strong words. Jesus knows the crushing pressure. He knows their poverty. 
He knows the slander they face. What does Jesus say next? Quite honestly, not what we probably want to hear. Here's how David Daryl Johnson puts it. I appreciate this. He, he says this. I, I wish Jesus said something like this. I know your pressure, and, and I'm going to lift it. My disciples should not have to be subject to difficulty or danger. Be faithful to me, and you will be insulated against the pressure of a broken, rebellious, decaying world. That is what I wish he had said, writes Johnson. But that is not what Jesus said, is it? Instead, Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Jesus declares to this church in Smyrna that things are about to get worse for them. The crushing pressure is going to increase and get greater. Why? Why will the pressure get greater? Why are things about to get worse? Is it because they have been unfaithful to Christ? In the letter to the church at Ephesus, we, we read Jesus' words of commendation and affirmation, and, and then he said, yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So, so is the crushing pressure, the, the increase of it, is that due to unfaithfulness on the, on the part of Smyrna? No, it's not, not at all. In fact, this is one of the letters in which we find no word of rebuke, no word of correction. So, so why, if they're being faithful to Christ, are they about to suffer more? Well, the answer to that question is found in our question. It's because they're being faithful. These believers are sold out for Jesus. They are passionately living for His kingdom. They are passionately loving and serving King Jesus. And they are not willing to say, Caesar is Lord, because they know there's only one Lord, and it's Jesus. And consequently, they find themselves in the crosshairs of Rome. They found themselves on the collision course with another kingdom. Johnson puts it this way. L look at it this way. When the light begins to shine in the darkness, the darkness has only two options. One is to acknowledge what the light reveals and make the necessary changes. The other is to extinguish the light. The lampstand of the church at Smyrna was shining brightly. God's will for life was being made very clear. And the darkness of the city could not tolerate it. And the lampstand was feeling the pressure. Do not be afraid. Jesus goes on, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. There are a couple things I want to draw your attention to here. First, we're confronted by the truth that there is more going on than meets the eye, more than we can perceive with our physical sense of sight that the crushing pressure that the believers at Smyrna were experiencing was ultimately coming at the hands of a spiritual enemy, the hands not of the Jews or the Romans, ultimately, but the hands of Satan. Now, it's certainly not intellectually popular to speak of a personal source of evil, to speak of Satan or the devil, but the Bible is consistent in declaring that there is this being who is against Christ, who is against God, who is against the people of God. Jesus consistently speaks of the evil one who stands furiously opposed to him and all that is good. Richard Halverson, who was for a season chaplain of the United States Senate, wrote this, or said this on the floor once. 
No adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, satanic spiritual force is bent on destroying all good and its author, Jesus Christ. As we make our way through the Revelation, we will see this fleshed out in in great apocalyptic symbolic language. In chapter 12, we will encounter a dragon filled with fury, standing before a pregnant woman about to give birth, ready to devour the male child she's about to to birth. But that child will be snatched up to heaven and the dragon will be thrown down to earth. And in his fury, he will make war on the offspring of that woman, the people of God. This is precisely what the Revelation shows us. There is more going on than meets the eye. When we live faithfully for Jesus, we will encounter opposition. Behind evil, behind suffering of the church stands a spiritual enemy. Paul wrote, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There's a second thing we discover in these words from Christ. And that is that suffering, the suffering that lies ahead is limited. For ten days. Now that's not a literal ten days, that's speaking figuratively, but the point is that it is limited. It is not forever. Evil is on a leash. There will come an end. Now the truth is, for some, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. That means that for some of them, they're not going to make it to the end of the ten days. But know this, that evil is on a leash. Evil is limited. Your suffering does have an end. In the face of crushing pressure, the crushing pressure they were experiencing, the crushing pressure that was about to get worse, Jesus calls them, do not be afraid, be faithful even to the point of death. And then he offers this promise. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. I want to take a moment, shift gears, and think through with you the application of this. What what is all of this, this message to the church in Smyrna? What does this mean for us? What is Jesus saying to you and to me this morning? First, I want to highlight this. Every one of us will die. Every one of us at some point will breathe our last. Uh, The question that this text raises is, will we die once or will we die twice? The second death, Jesus promises that that those who are faithful to Him, those who have put their faith in Him, will not experience the second death. The second death is the final death. It is eternal death. It is eternal exclusion from the presence of God and from all that is good. Jesus does not promise immunity from the first death. But he does say that those who put their faith in him, those who are victorious, those who lean on him, who trust him for his grace, who trust him for his gift of righteousness, those who surrender to Jesus and become his disciples, those who are victorious, that they will not die the second death. They will receive the victor's crown. If you are with us this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus, I want to speak to you for a moment. There is a God who who made you, who loves you, whose desire is to reconcile you to Himself. And there is a spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, who wants to keep you blind and far from God. He knows that He's defeated and He wants to drag you down with Him. 
And Jesus came. God, in his love for you, sent his son Jesus to die for you, to bear the penalty for our sin. We, we prayed earlier our prayer of confession. We can't fix what's broken. We can't remedy our sin problem. We are hopeless without Christ. But Christ comes and he calls all of us to come, to come as we are, not to clean ourselves up, but to come as we are and to put our, our hope fully in him, to say, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I trust you for your grace. I trust you for forgiveness. Give me new life. And when we do that, we are promised that we will in that moment be adopted into the family of God. We will be redeemed. We will be saved. We will be purified, clothed with his perfection, passed from death to life, from darkness to light. That can be your story even now this morning. Repent and believe. Agree with God that you have wandered alone and turned to him in faith and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. And when you do that, You are promised by Christ that the second death will never hurt you. That one day, no matter what you experience in this life, no matter when you breathe your last, that you will be welcomed, you will receive the victor's crown, and you will be welcomed into his glorious presence. We will all die, but we do not need to die twice. Second, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, here's something that we need to recognize. That if you and I, if, if we live radically committed lives to Christ, committed to his kingdom, committed to the values of his kingdom, if we live passionately as his followers, we too will experience pressure, perhaps even crushing pressure. We, like the believers in Smyrna, find ourselves in the crosshairs of an enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy us, who will react to us as we follow Jesus faithfully. We, we are heading for a conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And as we proclaim Jesus and the king of light, as we live faithfully for Jesus and all the good, all that he stands for, we will face pressure. We will face spiritual attack. Now perhaps, perhaps this seems largely theoretical for us living here in the West. I mean, sure, for, for believers living elsewhere, for believers in places like North Korea or in Pakistan, or Iraq, or, or in countries in North Africa. Sure, maybe, maybe they'll face crushing pressure. And to be sure, they do in many places. Fourteen years ago, I was in North Africa visiting a believer and his wife. And as he walked us around and showed us the city where he lived, at one point, a very sobering moment, he showed us a pile of, of rocks, boulders, where a couple months earlier, some, some men had attacked him and had begun to stone him He didn't know why they stopped, but by God's grace, his life was preserved. In many places, there's so many stories of Christians who are losing their lives around the world, the persecuted church around the world. So, sir, we we can read this and think, yes, they're under pressure, they're under crushing pressure, but, but doesn't it seem just largely theoretical here for us? Let me take a moment to ask a few questions. When in your life, where in my life, Am I tempted, are you tempted, to compromise our commitment to Christ? To to compromise our faithfulness to Jesus? Students, as you live out your educational life, I realize it's a little bit different now, but even now I'm sure there is pressure at times from peers. But think about those moments in school, those moments in your interaction with friends where there is pressure to compromise your faith to do what is wrong, to, to be 
little quiet about your love for Jesus, your commitment to him? Employers, employees, where are the moments in your life, in your work life, where you are tempted to compromise your integrity, to cut corners because everyone else is, to, to do something you know isn't honest because it'll help you get ahead or because someone is putting pressure on you to do that? What about parents as you seek to nurture your children in, in lives of faith? You inevitably face challenges from our culture about what you should be doing as a parent, the opportunities you should be providing, which sometimes may impinge on what it looks like to live faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. So what temptations do you face? One of the news stories that I've been following with some interest and a degree of apprehensiveness is that about Bill C-8 here in Canada. Some of you may be aware that on March 9th of this year, just a few months ago, the government introduced amendments to Canada's criminal code. Uh, in the bill, conversion therapy is banned, and it's defined this way. This is how the bill reads. A practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, or gender identity to cisgender, or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Now hear me, I, I don't want to single out homosexual or same-sex attraction. Their reality is the scripture speaks about all kinds of ways in which we can sin sexually. But this bill specifically speaks to this. And, and the wording leaves open the very real possibility that depending on how uh, judges will choose to interpret the definition, depending on if freedom of religion is trumped by other rights and freedoms, the, the, the real possibility exists that someday, not too far into the future, it could be a criminal offense for me to counsel someone in my office as your pastor to refrain from acting out in certain ways, but rather to surrender and submit themselves to what the Bible teaches, to what Christ's design for sexuality is. That could land me in prison. I've been contemplating that. We might think that that's unthinkable. This is Canada. We have rights and freedoms and religious freedom, but do we? Is my confidence in, in the laws of our land, or, or do I need to say, Lord Jesus, regardless of what comes, I can trust you? If we stand for Christ, if we are faithful as disciples of Christ, we will experience pressure. As we come in for a landing, I want to quote once more from Daryl Johnson. He says this, It seems only fair to conclude that there is a way out of the pressure. Just don't get too serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of the culture. Just settle for a comfortable, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship. Christianity light. And there will be no pressure. The temptation that we face as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to seek a safe life, a secure life, a life free of pain, not want to rock the boat. We will feel the pressure to compromise our faith. But that is simply not the life that Christ calls us to. A safe life, a secure life in this world. In Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. In in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, in the church in Ephesus. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And we know that Timothy would be put to death by the Romans. To follow Christ faithfully means that we will suffer, that we will experience pressure, even perhaps crushing pressure. Living for Christ, but the living Christ is with us. The living Christ is present with the church. The living Christ was present with the believers in Smyrna, and he is present here with us here in Canada, in Edmonton today. The living Christ is speaking, and he says, I am the first and the last. There is no God but me. He says, I am the one who died and came to life again. I have defeated death. Death is a defanged enemy. You do not need to fear even death. So do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. I I opened my message this morning with the story of Polycarp and his, his martyrdom. I left out a few key details. I told you that Polycarp was a pastor. He was. He was a pastor of Smyrna. This was his church. He had been a disciple of John himself. John likely put him in that role. And Polycarp was almost certainly in this church when they received this word, this, the revelation from John. He was there when they read it, when he heard this. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, and you will receive the victor's crown. And I have little doubt that 60 years later, as he stood tied to that stake, as the flames began to engulf him, The words of Christ ringing in his ears. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. Even to the point of death. And I pray. I pray that Polycarp's Polycarp's words echoed on that day. 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That those words would be our words. Forty-seven years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. Twenty-three years I have served him. Nine years, twelve years, ninety-three years that we would all declare with him, he has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.